If anybody out there is good with Photoshop, I would love to see the Norman Rockwell turkey picture, but with like an E. coli sitting at the table. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we debate the merits of the GRE and graduate school applications and taste a bourbon on a budget. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 23. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hi, Dan. Buongiorno. <laughs> Do you have some pizza tonight or... Uh... Chicken wings, but sometimes <laughs> I say different languages. <laughs> Why not? It happens. Why not? Dan, I've got uh, something a little different for us tonight. Okay, I'm excited about different things. So we're typically we're typically drinking beer at the top of the show. That is true. We have sampled many a microbrew. We have, but I thought, Dan, that today we could actually try another bourbon. And I am excited. I love a good bourbon. I do too, Dan. What have you picked out for us? And you know, a few episodes ago, you'll remember we tried some Basil Hayden's, which I'd received as a gift. Yeah, it was delicious but a little bit outside the price range of our listeners actually outside of your price range too you did receive it as a gift that's true Uh, after that episode i heard from one of our listeners who's a postdoc who actually went out and purchased some basil hayden's per our suggestion and loved it um i'm waiting for my royalty check from the basil hayden (laughs) corporation that's right but dan you know it got me thinking you know we know that most of our listening audience are graduate students and postdocs that is true and we know that typically grad students and postdocs are not the most highly financially compensated group yeah i i don't recall having a lot of money to go drop on the top shelf liquor no so i felt a little bad recommending a 50 dollar bottle uh, bourbon which actually as far as bourbons go is probably a middle of the road Okay, so you found something that that the common man can enjoy? I actually saw on Whiskey Advocate magazine. That's a thing that exists? I peruse from time to time, right next to my everyday sadism. (laughs) It's my Whiskey Advocate. Does whiskey require advocacy? Is it a a underserved liquor? Well, you're the word guy. I wonder if it can advocate also mean connoisseur i'm not sure next week on the show the origin of the word advocate i don't know what it is (laughs) we will look it up but anyway dan i was looking at this and this was their 10 highest rated whiskeys and bourbons for the fall okay i I feel like a whiskey is aged so there shouldn't be a fall line but okay well i imagine tell me more i'm I'm with you i imagine it gives them the ability to put out this list four times otherwise (laughs) a magazine becomes a single catalog (laughs) that's right dan we should do our Hello, PhD, top 10 protocols for fall. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Agarose gels. That's right. The pumpkin spice agarose gels. Uh, So anyway, Dan, this is what piqued my interest about the specific list, though. Uh, So the number one was some 13-year-old bourbon that was $135 per bottle. Ouch. Number three. I would like to try it. Please, listeners, send it to us. But well, number three was the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society Pigs in Plaster, fourteen-year-old, for one hundred and forty dollars. But okay, the number two sandwiched in between those bourbons was the Evan Williams Single Barrel, 
For $137. That would be the average of those two. For $29. Whoa, that is a departure. And so, Dan, I went out yesterday, and I'm glad to say, on sale for $27, I picked up a bottle of the Evan Williams Single Barrel. All right, well, should we try it? Let's try it. So, my hope, hello, PhD listeners, is to find you a quality bourbon for a grad student budget. What do you think, Dan? Okay, I've got my I've got my taste. We had we had the single ice cube, so it's a little bit chilled, which I like. And and it's definitely got some of the nice bourbon burn to it. Um but then it kind of melts into a nice buttery flavor. It's it's not bad. Well, let me ask you, are you getting complex fruits, clementine, pineapple, golden raisin, balanced nicely with honey, vanilla custard, and dusty corn, along with a sprinkling of cinnamon and nutmeg? The the corn is not quite dusty. I would call it maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I've got all of those things. Um, you know, it's it's a a very good bourbon. One thing that's cool about this, Dan, uh, if you flip this bottle over, maybe I'll post this. Handwritten on the bottle, this was barreled on April tenth, two thousand six. Do you remember what you were doing in April two thousand six? Oh my gosh. Yeah, probably I was in grad school. Yeah, I was in grad school. I wow, was probably, this is like a time machine. So if you think about the day this this bourbon was put into a barrel, we were graduate students. I'm going to go back and look at my email from that time we and find should, out what we were we up should. to. This is barrel 753, and this is cool, Dan. This was bottled on October 15th, 2015. Wow. I appreciate you you serving the this community with an affordable bourbon. You are doing God's work, sir. Well. And whiskey Advocate says perenni- perennially one of the best values in whiskey. And so I'm not going to go so far as to say this is as good as Basil Hayden's. It is not as good as Basil Hayden's. But, hey, if you find this for 27 bucks, it's not bad. Put in a little bit of uh, sweet vermouth and a <laughs> dash of bitters, and you've got a delicious Manhattan. <laughs> or some Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know, or some Coca-Cola. Totally true. All right, Dan. Uh, let's move on. So what is one thing, Dan, that the vast majority of our listeners all have in common? Um, excellent taste in podcasts. That is very true. But besides that, one thing I would say that most of our listeners probably have in common is that they took the GRE at some point. That is probably true. I'm trying to think through some of the, the people we know of. Yeah, definitely. You took the GRE? If you, I, I took it. You took it. Yeah, I would say most, if not all, of our listeners who have attended or are attending graduate school in the United States took the GRE standardized test, which is the entry exam for most all graduate programs, regardless of subject matter in the U.S. That would make you think, Dan, that the GRE must be pretty important if all of these schools and all of these programs require it and use it for their missions it must be testing something really important yeah i don't remember a single application i filled out that said this is optional so it must be um, an important factor in their decisions i would think yeah so what do you think the gre measures um how good you are at answering analogy questions Well, you know, Dan, do you, would you say, thinking back on your time in graduate school, if you can, can you even remember taking the GRE? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, I remember it was, um, it was on a computer and I remember you, 
you get questions and if you answer them correctly, you get harder questions. And if you answer them incorrectly, you get easier questions. And I remember partway through, I got this really like softball question. I was like, oh no, I messed it up. Cat, I'm never going to recover. Cat is to meow as uh, dog is to blank. Yeah. This I is not going well. I definitely remember. <laughs> I, I knew, you know, you know the algorithm. And so you get an easy question. You're like, oh, I quit. This is terrible. <laughs> well, you know, Dan, um, I actually think a lot about the GRE. I actually teach GRE prep to, to pr- students who want to go to grad school. But the thing that the GRE actually measures is how good a job you do at taking the GRE. Um, I, that is tautological, and I believe you are <laughs> correct. So would you say, though, looking back on your time in graduate school, that anything that contributed to you doing well or not well in the GRE translated into how well or not well you did as a grad student. Yes, because we did a lot of antonyms in my lab. <laughs> you don't think I did? One after another, yeah. you were doing antonyms and geometry problems. Dan, yeah, totally, I'm totally unrelated to what I did in, in lab, for sure. Yeah, and so we are not alone in thinking that. I think most people in academia, um, if they think long enough, will recognize that the GRE, though ubiquitous in its use in admissions committees across the country, in no way directly tests anything that's probably useful in how well students will do in graduate school. So what I wanted to do, Dan, is is point out an article that I came across not too long ago, and this was from Nature, and it's called A Test That Fails. So I don't want to be a, give a spoiler alert, but you can probably predict what the author point of view is in this study on the GRE. Um, I'm going to guess that they think it fails. <laughs> that is that based is, just on the title. <laughs> that is correct, Dan. Uh, so I would have done really well on the GRE question about reading this this section of the document and understanding the author's intent. Yes, you would have done well with that. See, I'm doing very well. Or you would have felt bad because you realized how easy that question is. You must not be doing well. So we're going to get into a couple things that this this article talks about. But, but really quick before we do, Dan... Um, why is it, do you think, that admissions committees use the GRE if we can all really spend two seconds thinking about it and realize it's probably not a good measure I of actually, what we want? I actually have a good answer for this this rhetorical question that okay. you don't want my answer to. What do you think? Um, I've been thinking about the GRE a little bit, and I think the reason that we like the GRE is because we are asking admissions teams to solve a very complex problem. We want them to look at thousands tens of thousands of different factors across hundreds of different applicants and to decide on someone's future performance. We're asking them to do forecasting. It's a high, highly dimensional data and the GRE allows them to take a shortcut. It says, hey, I can look at this one number and I can make a cut and I'm filtering out everybody below whatever value I pick, 700, 600, 500. And after that, I don't have to worry about them anymore. So it's it's a rule of thumb. It's a heuristic, and human beings like that. I think you're absolutely right, Dan. Faculty make up admissions committees. They're very busy people doing things besides reading applications. And I think anytime, Dan, you put numbers next to names, your you know your natural tendency is to rank things by numbers: high number, good; low number, less good. Uh, so it's a shortcut, Dan. I actually was fortunate enough, and this is what got me thinking about this this week. So Casey Miller, who is an associate professor of materials science and chemistry at Rochester Institute of Technology, was at 
my campus this week and actually went to hear him speak. And he's the lead author on the article, A Test That Fails. Convenient. And he was there talking about materials science type things, but he gave one one talk on this GRE stuff and I found it really fascinating. And one of the things he talked about, Dan, was that typically if we think about the way admissions works and specifically graduate school admissions, it's a two-tiered structure. And so what often happens is the first pass is we look at these, we'll call them cognitive measures. So we look at things like the GRE and GPA and programs like... And other TLAs, <laughs> three-letter acronyms. <laughs> That's true. There, there probably are others. So anyway, Dan, um, often admissions committees may even have cutoffs in that first round, that first pass. So if your score is at least this number on the GRE or the GPA, we'll send you to the next round. And then that second tier is where the admissions committees tend to look at these more non-cognitive factors, this more holistic view, maybe looking more at the personal statement, things the student has overcome, the experiences they've had. Uh, but only after the bar has been cleared for these cognitive measures like the GRE. So so we're sifting people through different shapes and sizes of, of filter, and we're First, eliminating anybody who doesn't have a high GPA or a high GRE. And then we're saying, okay, now what is your experience in research? And have you ever overcome a problem? And have you persisted in, in this topic, even though it's been difficult? Absolutely. Of the people that are left. And so what the authors noticed was in this article, they looked at ETS data. So the testing service that does the GRE, the ETS, another TLA. Mm-hmm. And what they saw, Dan, was there were pretty big differences among how different racial and ethnic groups do on the GRE. And also, there were pretty big differences, pretty big gender differences in performance on the GRE. Men, on average, tend to do better on the GRE than women. Asian Americans and white Americans tend to do better than Hispanic, Mexican-American, Native American, Puerto Rican, or African-American GRE test takers. So then, if we take this back to graduate admissions, if we have this two-tiered structure, if that's the prevalent way that we choose graduate students, if we're having cutoffs, effectively what we're doing, Dan, is in that second tier, when we get to that second round, we've really sifted off whole swaths of people groups before we even get to digging into the application and looking at some of these more holistic factors, non-cognitive factors. Yeah, so if we know one group of people is going to score at a lower level than another on a particular test, and there are multiple reasons why they might score lower or higher, and and we say, you've got to meet this minimum threshold, then, then we should not be surprised that we are biasing our admissions. Yeah, and so Dan, just to, just to back up and make sure we're clear, there's kind of two issues here that come up with the use of the GRE. The first issue is we're using this test as a predictor of students we think that are going to do a great job in grad school. There's more and more research that actually that's not the case, that just because you do well in the GRE, and again, this was at the top of the show, we thought about this and realized like, well, of course, it's silly to think just because you did well in the GRE, you're going to be a great graduate student. But that's kind of what we're saying by using that as a predictive factor. Yeah, this is, I mean, this kind of speaks to me uh, as a person who likes to think about data and data science. So if I've got a data set and I'm trying to make a prediction or a forecast um, 
about which group is going to perform well in graduate school. I might have these thousand different factors or a hundred different factors. And what I want to do is identify which ones are, are correlated with students who do well. Um, and if I'm going through that list, I'm not thinking like, oh, somebody that's good at antonyms, you know, I, I wouldn't make that prediction personally. And, you know, we make the joke about it, but it doesn't make any sense. It's like saying, okay, we're going to have a, a high jump contest. And if you can do the high jump, then you get into graduate school. It's like you would laugh at that. But the reality is why does doing analogies make you more qualified? Yeah. And, and that is exactly what we're doing, Dan. And so so the first issue then is we're using a measure of that probably has nothing to do with the thing we actually would like to measure. The second issue, Dan, and using the GRE is as we talked about and as is pointed out in the Nature article, is that by doing that, we're actually greatly discriminating against certain people groups, right? So we're using a measure that probably is not predictive of the things we want to measure. Yeah, it is not specific or, or helpful to graduate success. Yeah, and as the article points out, the only real thing that the GRE seems to be predictive of is either your socioeconomic status, the color of your skin, or your gender. So it's successful at eliminating people <laughs> groups. That's something, I guess. Oh, okay. One defense. It's really inexpensive to take this test. So, oh, no, no, wait. It costs a lot of money. You know, Dan, I'm glad you mentioned that because I work a lot with students who want to go to graduate school. And I happen to know that it costs around 180 bucks. That is a lot of money. You could buy a lot of bottles of Evan Williams for 180 bucks. You could even buy three to four bottles of Basil Hayden's. See? That's the quantitative bucks. section of the GRE. <laughs> we just we just unpacked. No, and and then you have to pay extra to get it sent places, as I recall. Yeah. So if there's a racket to the whole thing, so you get with your hundred and eighty dollars for school, you can send your your test scores to four schools. Every additional school is about twenty more bucks. So if you apply to eight schools, you're going to be paying the hundred and eighty bucks, then another eighty bucks just to send that score to each of those additional schools. Okay, so in summary, it's costing me money. It's not selecting for students who will succeed. It is selecting against entire people groups. Yeah. What else do you have for me? Yeah, well, Dan, actually, I think it gets even worse because as we think about the GRE being an important component of getting into graduate school, let's say you are an individual who struggles on the GRE, Okay but you know that it's an important factor in getting into graduate school. So that's your dream. You want to go to grad school. You take the GRE. You don't do so well. What do you have to do? Take it again. Right. You study. You take it again. You pay another 180 bucks, another 40 to 60 bucks to send your scores out. So you can see, Dan, also this tends to be extra burdensome on individuals who have less money. Yeah, so if, if I didn't have the $180 the first time, um, I'm going to be really mad about the second time or third time. Yeah, so we're asking students to fork out all this money to take a test that in no way is predictive of how well they'll do in graduate school. Okay, great show, Josh. I really enjoyed that one. <laughs> On that note. Uh, so anyway, Dan, I think, you know, hopefully we've identified some of the ways that the GRE is a problem. So so what do we do instead? And and that's what I think we can yeah, talk about. Yeah, and I think about. this that is important because... The reason we cling to it is not because everybody thinks it's perfect, it's because we want something. We want some way of, of not having to make this 
highly complex decision about each individual applicant. Yeah, exactly. And Dan, when I saw um, when I saw Dr. Miller give his give his talk, one of the things he talked about was what we don't want to do is we don't want to just lower the bar in graduate school admissions because in a lot of ways that could lead to perpetuating stereotypes and that's not at all what we want to do. But instead what we want to do is actually change the bar and what we need to do is change the bar because actually if you look at the success rate of students going into graduate school, I didn't realize this, Dan, but in a lot of fields if we look nationally, especially in the hard sciences, physics, uh, math. Sometimes the completion rate for PhD can hover just a little over 50%. I think in the biological sciences, nationwide, it's like in the 60s. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. And, and I'm trying to think to myself, what if I could make a list of traits that are going to make someone successful in graduate school, having been through it and having recognized that I probably wasn't the prime candidate for going to graduate school, I would say... If I'm going to bet on a horse in that race, I want them to be uh, tenacious about every time they fail, they, you know, dust it off, get back up, go back to it. I want them to be passionate about the question and, and so passionate that they can't sleep at night because they're thinking about it all the time. Those are the things that, that tell me they're going to be successful. Um, their ability to, to solve a geometry problem, eh, not so much. Yeah. And, Dan, you know, the unfortunate thing is there hasn't been a whole lot of research on this topic. So there's actually been more and more research that the GRE is not a good measure. But there's one study that came out by two scientists, Viktorov and Boyatzis from Case Western. You'll have to bear with me, Dan. They were not studying biomedical graduate students or even science graduate students, but they were studying dental students. That's better than I was expecting a bee foraging paper again. (laughs) No bees this time. But basically what they did, Dan, is they looked at how well these students who had finished maybe their first couple years of classroom dentistry who were now out doing clinical things, the clinical part of their training, and their advisors, they had them rank the students on how well they were doing in the more applied part of their job. So, you know, you would argue how well they did in their first couple years of classes, probably less predictive of how good of a dentist they would be than That's how well they were doing That's a different game now. Yeah, exactly. So what they did, Dan, and this is what I think you were getting at when you were naming what you would want to look for in a successful graduate student. They looked at, first of all, their grades and their dental application test, their DAT, another another TLA. TLA. And so they, they looked to see if that was predictive, and it wasn't. Okay. Okay, so then what they also looked at were these things they called self-management competencies. All right, and some of these things they looked at were emotional self-control, achievement orientation, initiative, trustworthiness, conscientiousness, adaptability, and optimism. Yeah, adaptability, good word. So all of these things came together to formulate what we have probably heard this term before. I was low on optimism. I'm (laughs) realizing it right now. (laughs) You were. But all these combined to form an emotional intelligence score. Okay, and so what they found was these emotional intelligence competencies that were related to self-management, these were significant predictors of the clinical grade they were assigned by their preceptors. Okay, I love that, but how do they measure those things? Well, that's a good question, Dan, and I think there's good news and there's bad news. So without getting too far into it, there can is we, can research Can we pay $180 on to get that <laughs> number and put well, it through a new you know, algorithm? Maybe you could. So the good news is these things can be measured. There actually are ways, and there's a whole group of social scientists who have studied how to measure these types of competencies. The bad news is 
it is a little more complicated. It, it's a little more time consuming and a little more effort than just a GRE number on a spreadsheet. We're announcing the Hello PhD brand emotional IQ test. Just twenty nine ninety five, and we will tell you whether you have optimism. But I think, Dan, you know, if there is a take-home message, a suggestion, it is this. It is if we're serious about, A, wanting to select the right people and the best people who are likely to succeed, and also if we're serious about not excluding entire people groups from the game just because of some measure that's not even indicative of how well they'll do, We'll do the work to actually figure out the ways to identify some of these features that can lead us to know who should be in graduate school and who shouldn't. And some interesting things, Dan, from this line of research, these non-cognitive features, as they're called, these have actually been used and studied in industry for a long time because it turns out in industry, industry is really concerned about getting the right people in the job because they want to make money, right? Yeah, I, I work in industry and and it is absolutely the driving factor before you hire a person. It's so costly to, to select a person, to interview them, um, to train them, to incorporate them into the team. You do not want to make a mistake. Exactly, Dan. And the other really key part about this is the research shows that there's little, if any, group differences among these non-cognitive abilities. So unlike the GRE, where we've seen very clearly that there are differences in how different people groups perform on that exam specifically, Looking at these non-cognitive skills, there are no group differences among how well people do. So a woman can have perseverance and optimism and all the things you listed as much as a man could. And, and those two people are more similar in terms of their outcomes um, than they would be in terms of their GRE scores. That's right, Dan. And these factors are likely better predictors of success. And Dan, by the way, these non-cognitive factors can also be taught. That's an interesting point. So one thing that's important to point out, and this was actually a question. You can't teach me optimism. <laughs> You're a way more optimistic person than you used to be. Yeah, well, it's because I'm doing work that I like now. Okay, well, there you go. But that was actually a comment that came up in the talk that I was at as a faculty member raised his hand and said, well, if we use these non-cognitive factors, is all we're doing just selecting for specific personality types? And so we're going to have basically all these clones you know, people who are game show hosts <laughs> get all the yeah. jobs. <laughs> the happy, smiling graduate class. But but actually, but the thing to point out is these aren't just personality traits, damn it. These, again, these are many different measures um, of these more behavioral traits. And some of these actually can be taught. So if we think about training students, students who are interested in science, interested in graduate school, a lot of these are things that you do pick up by working in the lab, by gaining experience, perseverance, grit, um, ability to think critically. Um, so I think that's good news as well. And these non-cognitive metrics, not only being used in industry, if you've heard of the Gates Millennium Scholarship Program, they exclusively use these non-cognitive measures. I mean, that's fantastic. And and so now incoming graduate students, you're telling me, are going to save $180 plus the cost of filing those scores, right? Everybody is moving to this because the research is clear. Well, Dan, I do have some good news. It seems like though academia, the tide tends to turn very slowly. I do know these are the types of conversations that our graduate training institutions are starting to have. Everybody's talking about this. The changes are starting to happen. And actually, Dan, the NIH very recently, I was at a meeting 
And, you know, these training grants that fund graduate students and postdocs in a lot of these biomedical fields, for a long time, they required GRE scores to be reported. So admissions committees would also say, well, we need to make sure we have students with high GRE scores so that we can get our training grants. As of this year, Dan, the NIH has removed GRE as a measure of the students on their training grants. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Everybody can say, oh, we don't care about this, but the moment you require it and the moment it's reported, it's affecting your decision. That's right. And I dream of a day, Dan, five years, 10 years down the road, no GREs on admissions for graduate school. The ETS staff will have to find other work. <laughs> I'm sure they'll find something to do. Just like the... Destroying jobs. I mean, what did, what did the people who used to work in the rotary phone factory... I'm sure they found something else to do. They work at ETS now. All right, Dan, let's move on. You had a really cool word origin this week. I'm itching to know what this one is. I was excited about it. The clue last week was holiday themed, obviously. A happy family may eat at the same table, but this group of bacteria also shares the meal. Isn't happy family also a Chinese dish? I have no (laughs) idea. Where do you get your Chinese food? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to look that up. Okay. Um, I thought really hard about this being a microbiologist then, and I kept trying to think about bacteria that had words that sounded happy or joyful, but oh, I might I, have been barking up the wrong yeah, tree. Yeah, I threw you way off with the happy family. Uh, the actual the actual phrase you were looking for was uh, eat at the same table, and the answer was commensal. So commensal comes from the Latin com, with, or together, and mensa, which means table. So this is a biological term. It's an ecological term that comes from the 1870s, and it refers to a group of relationships with two organisms where one benefits from the other without affecting it. The thought, I think, with commensal bacteria was we eat our food they get to enjoy it, but they don't really harm us. I think another example would be vultures after a lion kills its prey. I'm just imagining all these bacteria sitting around the table in my gut, sharing a nice meal, having some great conversation. I know. If if anybody out there is good with Photoshop, I would love to see the Norman Rockwell turkey picture, but with like <laughs> an E. coli sitting at the table. <laughs> that That is your assignment. Hello, PhD listeners. I'm going to give you two related words, and then I want to discuss the more controversial nature of commensal bacteria. Oh. So the related words, when mensa came through Spanish, it became mesa, which I think you recognize. That's the... Table. Table. You got it. Table, right? Mensa, mensa, mesa. And so you'll see mensa and mesa um, throughout the scientific literature and other places. But commensal... Um, I think we're going to stop using this term about bacteria because we are learning so much about the gut microbiome and it is no longer the case that these bacteria just exist inside us and eat our food. Like They are doing something good for us. Yeah, and they are actually controlling a lot of features about us. Yeah, and and so instead of being commensal, um, it would be the ecological uh, mutualism rather than commensalism. So we'll see if this changes in, in literature. So commensalism is going the way of ETS and the rotary phone. Exactly. But it is not going the way of Evan Williams' single barrel whiskey. Let me give you the clue for next week. Next week's etymology puzzle is, when you expose this element to oxygen, it emits a faint glow, earning it the name light bearer. I'll read it again. When you expose this element to oxygen, it emits a faint glow, earning it the name light bearer. 
Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. Once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct answers and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. Dan, I'm glad to see you're giving some love to our chemistry listeners. I mean, there's so many cool science element words. We're, we got to start cracking through them. Einsteinanium, where does that come from? <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> there were, some things are just too difficult. Dan, this was a really thought-provoking show. I enjoyed it. Me too. Always fun to drink bourbon and talk about stuff with you. So if you have something you would like for us to talk about on the show or you're going through something in the lab you'd like to hear us discuss, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd or connect with us on Facebook. Dan, it's been great. Please send me your Norman Rockwell pictures with bacteria at the table. And we will see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>